I'd like to welcome those of you who just arrived today for the second part of the three-month retreat. My name is Joseph, and I'll introduce the new team that arrived with you. Uh, On my left is Marcia Rose, who was a resident teacher here at IMS for many years, and more recently has been teaching in Taos, New Mexico. She's also helped teach the three-month retreat in the past several years. On my right is Guy Armstrong, who is one of the senior teachers at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, and also has helped in the three-month retreat here in Barrie in the last few years. To his right, down below, is Steve Armstrong. Uh, and he's been a three-month course teacher regular uh, for quite a while now. Uh, he was a monk in Burma for about five years. Um, I was actually, I was just reflecting upon on this teachers of this retreat, uh, Guy and Steve uh, from this half, and Michelle and Carol from the last half, were all on the very early IMS staffs. Uh, it's just there's this long association of 25 years or more, 26 years. Uh, now they've made it up to the platform. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all it takes. <laughs> uh, Kamala Masters, who is not here tonight, she'll also be uh, teaching this course, and she'll be with us tomorrow. Uh, she and I, sh- uh, in in Hindi, there's a phrase, uh, "Guru Bai." And it refers to two people who have uh, the same teacher. I'm not sure whether it's really... My Hindi is a little weak, so I'm not sure what it refers to brothers, you know, two men who have it, but in this context, anyway. uh, Kamala and I uh, both have had our first teacher, Anagarika Munindra. Uh, It goes back many, many years. So she'll also be teaching with us. She was recently uh, spent time in Burma as a nun. And then on the far right is Patricia Genoux Feldman, who is a teacher trainee. She's from Switzerland. She sat the first six weeks doing the metta practice. Uh, And she, like Rebecca in the first half, will be doing sign-ups maybe five days a week. For those of you who do not have a scheduled interview on any particular day and would like some further support or uh, questions about your practice, you can sign up for interviews with her. Um, That's the teaching team. For those of you who just came, just arrived, there is a person that we have uh, with the title of Night Contact. And that's a person who's in the building in case of some emergency at night. Uh, This is the person uh, you should uh, see. She's in the back, Kate Muller. She would stand. And her name and room number are on either are on or will be on the bulletin board. It's not particularly meant for a late-night chat if you're feeling a little bored. (laughs) But if there's something urgent that has come up any time during the night, uh, you can contact her. This transition time, as we go from part one to part two, with some yogis leaving and new yogis arriving, um, 
it's a noticeable transition in the current, in the flow of the course. For those of you who have just arrived, it's really quite an amazing mm, circumstance, you know, to come in, about 30 of you or so, to come into a retreat halfway where people have been sitting intensively already, you know, for six weeks, and have dropped into this space of stillness and concentration and mindfulness. So in some way, their practice is a gift to you. You know, it really makes it quite a bit easier to drop into that space right from the beginning. Um, and so see if you can open to it. I think it really will be a tremendous support for your own practice as you settle in. For those of you who have been here, it's a great opportunity to extend the quality and the feeling of metta, of loving kindness, of welcoming, of receiving, you know, the energy of people coming into practice now. Uh, your practice becomes your gift to them. It's not always completely smooth sailing the first few days, you know, because the new people probably won't quite be as slow and maybe not quite as perfectly mindful as you are. <laughs> and so it's a chance to both extend your loving kindness and your generosity and also a chance to practice some patience you know, as people settle in. It really won't take long till all the energy harmonizes, um, but there is, you know, a day or two of transition. So I would just like to say welcome. It's really, uh, the first, the first six weeks has been wonderful and I'm anticipating the same for this six weeks. So now Guy is going to give a little introductory talk. I wanted to extend a welcome uh, to those of you who have just arrived. Um, I arrived about three days earlier, so I'm able to do that. And uh, very happy to have you here. And for those of you who have been sitting a long time, I want to thank you for warming up the hall for us. It's very noticeable as I've sat here over these last few days. Also to say that um, it really makes me happy to join the retreat at this point. Um, I feel really privileged to work with a group that has as much commitment as this group does. I know that you've all made a lot of sacrifice to be here for six weeks or three months. And that kind of commitment uh, inspires me and I think inspires all of us on the teaching team. I think there's a special atmosphere that one feels in the middle or at the beginning of a long retreat that's born of that commitment and the sacrifice. Reminds me a little bit of the um, passage in the Majjhima where the Buddha describes uh, leaving the palace. He said, while still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessing of youth in the prime of life, I shaved off my hair and beard, though my mother and father wished otherwise, and grieved with tearful faces. And I put on the yellow robe and went forth from the home life into homelessness. You may not have left grieving parents, but you might have left grieving partners, or children, or friends, or family. And all of you really have moved into a homeless phase while you're here with all the uh, sacrifice that that implies. 
we give up so many things to be here. And it's, it's not always easy letting that uh, level of comfort go. Friends and family and partners and entertainments of books and music and television. And yet all of you have voluntarily decided to go without those. It's of course not that there's anything wrong with any of those activities and relationships, but the problem is that our minds have gotten kind of um, bent by leaning on those things kind of distorted by habituation to those supports. And one, I think one of the great joys of the simplicity of a retreat is that we rediscover that natural freedom that the mind has when it doesn't need to lean on anything. So this kind of simplicity, the voluntary simplicity in living is described in the tradition as renunciation. And the natural freedom that we find in it is one of the great fruits of making that outer step. We find within it a real ease in living simply. In the monastic life, there are considered to be four requisites for life. Food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Those are the four things that the monks and nuns were always provided with. Everything else was considered to be uh, additional or a little bit of a luxury. So as we come into a situation like this, there's great food, but we give up a lot of choice. We don't necessarily have the exact food that we want or it tasting the exact way we wanted it to taste. There's a sign that uh, we put up in the Spirit Rock kitchen. Actually, the cooks put it up. And it's from the cooks to the yogis, and it says, when we prepare a delicious meal, that's our practice. And when we prepare an undelicious meal, that's your practice. (laughs) I like it because this kind of really summarizes the, the spirit of the renunciate life, which is, in the life of renunciation, we take what's given, And if we have reactions to it, we work with our reactions. It's kind of part of the bargain. The same thing with accommodation. You've probably checked into your room by now and scoped it out and find out found out whether it's to your liking or not. And you may feel, you know, it's a very pleasant room, but really it would have been nicer to have a single room or a different roommate or a room closer to the dining hall, or a room further from the bathrooms, or something. And yet, that room is your room. And so just to work with the level of acceptance of accommodating the reaction and making one's peace peace with what's given. One of the other great renunciations in the retreat is that of conversation and contact. We practice noble silence throughout the retreat. And this means that uh, we don't talk with one another. We talk with the staff only when necessary. Talk with teachers only when necessary. Don't make phone calls uh, except when it's really necessary. And we especially want to ask I think we do this at the start of every retreat, ask that you not communicate with one another. And there's a tendency to um, want to write notes at certain points in the retreat. Someone does something that you really like and you might want to make contact. Somebody does something that is disturbing or annoying and you want to let them know. And believe me, we are all going to um, infringe on one another at different times in the retreat. You might come in late, might rustle around during the sitting, might leave early, might look like we're taking too much food in the lunch line, all these common habits. And we really have to develop kind of a tolerance with one another for each other's habits. But it's very tempting if somebody does something that's really kind of against the social etiquette 
coming into the meditation hall late, wearing a really crinkly nylon jacket and rustling all hour as they shift in their sitting. And there's a temptation to write a note to put them on the true path, the path to true mindfulness. And it will really be a support to their practice. Dear fellow meditator, you know, and we catalog the complaints, please practice more mindfully in the future. And of course those notes are always signed, metta. (coughs) We really ask you to refrain from writing notes to one another because you can just imagine the times that you've been most sensitive in your retreat life, what it feels like to get a communication like that. We all get very quiet and very open through the retreat practice. And a message like that, if there's even the slightest hint or suggestion of angry feeling behind it, can kind of go off like a bomb in our hearts. It can really set off reverberations that will go on for days. Someone's whole retreat can kind of be thrown in a new direction, really for days by getting a note like that. So we really ask if there's anything that you need to communicate to a fellow meditator, please do it through uh, John, the manager, or through one of us, through one of the teaching staff, and let us then handle the communication if there needs to be one with that fellow meditator. Especially if you detect some angry energy in the mind, as you write the note, please direct it to one of us. Actually, Steve is very good with that kind of stuff. So. but you can write any of us. I also wanted to mention uh, there's a special situation if you've come here as part of a couple. It's a beautiful thing for uh, partners in the Dharma to practice together on short retreats and long retreats. There's a tremendous support in it. Then there's a, a great deal of joy in sharing this kind of experience with a partner. But there's also a new set of challenges in uh, sitting together, especially in a long retreat, where uh, the atmosphere is one of silence. So I just want to talk a little bit about my personal experience in, in this area and share some suggestions. I've been married for uh, over 15 years now. My wife and I have done a lot of retreats together, short and long. I think the longest we've done is six weeks uh, together. And when we go into retreat, we have a very clear understanding and agreement that we won't make any contact with one another um, unless there's some real emergency. And we actually don't even make eye contact with each other. So we found that really what works best for us is to practice on the retreat almost as though the other person wasn't there. And of course, we're very aware of each other. When I'm practicing, I know exactly where my wife is sitting in the hall. I know where she does her walking meditation. I know what lunch she comes to. I'm very tuned into her presence, but I never go out of my way to acknowledge it. If people saw us, they wouldn't know that there was any connection at all. We found that just works um, absolutely the best for kind of maintaining the simplicity of our own practice. And I know when uh, couples come into retreat, especially if you haven't done this a lot, there can be a tendency to think that, oh, the other person really needs my support. So people might arrange beforehand to do their walking meditation close to each other or to have their meals across from one another or to exchange notes um, frequently on the bulletin board. I really heartily recommend that if you're here with a partner that you have an understanding that you'll really do the retreat quite independently and that you won't have that kind of um, informal contact, even if there's no talking going on. You know, we often feel like, I, I think, as part of the thinking that I need to be there to support my partner. The problem in a silent retreat is that the nuances of communication are impossible to maintain. And so it's very hard to feel out what the other person actually wants or doesn't want. 
And if the other person then wants to withdraw into more um, solitary practice, it's very hard to communicate that. So in this atmosphere, it's really hard to make the adjustments. When other meditators see couples together, it can often stimulate their loneliness or their own wish for a partner, somebody to share the experience with, can be disturbing to others. But particularly in this area of support, what starts off as, a, as an intention to support the other usually ends up, in fact, as a distraction to the other person. So I really recommend if you've come here with a partner that you start with a really clear agreement just to follow your own individual paths uh, during the retreat. And really stay quite separate. And that will really be for the best of each of your uh, individual times here. So it sounds like there are a lot of rules. Along with the silence, we ask that you not get involved with reading and writing to any significant extent. And there can be a tendency in hearing all the rules to think, gosh, it's really a tight place. But I think what happens experientially is that as the mind relaxes into the simplicity, it can really open up a lot. That's really the purpose of renunciation, is to unburden our hearts. So as the heart becomes less burdened, there's a great, there can be a great feeling of spaciousness, lightness, and ease. And that's really kind of the attitude that you want to work toward, so that there's this kind of outward impeccability in our actions, but inwardly our approach to the practice is very open and spacious and accommodating. I just want to close with a, uh, another quotation from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada. How very happily we live, free from anger among those who are angry. How very happily we live, free from unha- unhappiness among those who are unhappy. How very happily we live, free from busyness around those who are busy. How very happily we live, we who have nothing. We will feed on rapture like the radiant gods. So at this time, Marcia is going to um, lead us into a ritual that will uh, formally enter us into uh, the retreat space together. I'd like to also welcome you, those of you that have just arrived, and those of you that have been here for six weeks. It's uh, such a treat, (laughs) such a gift to walk into this space with close to a hundred people who are here committed to awakening. It's a great gift and a treat. In light of what Guy said about relinquishing, letting go of much of our daily life uh, ways and habits and uh, supports in coming here uh, without a lot of that. What do we need? What do we need while we're here? What inner and outer supports do we need as we enter into, as we sustain this exploration, this exploration of the truth, this investigation of the nature of things, this investigation of the ephemeral, impermanent nature of things, as we explore the nature and the causes of suffering, of confusion, of anguish in this life. As we explore how it is. What kind of support do we need? 
for this exploration of selflessness, this entering into the potential of the boundlessness, the expansiveness, this capacity of our heart, of our mind. Whenever I spend time in retreat myself, just a few days or a more extended period of practice, although I very deeply in my bones know the great and the small benefits of extended periods of practice, I'm reminded again and again and again, each time, each day of my retreat, what an incredible, great gift we've been given from the Buddha. And what an incredible, great gift we give to ourselves when we take the time out of our ordinary lives to put out the energy and to directly engage in this journey of awakening. Whenever I go into personal retreat time, I make a determination, I make a resolve that every single morning I'll start the day with taking refuge. Taking refuge in the three treasures, the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And in doing this every day, I experience various facets and different levels of an inner and an outer support that really helps me sustain my practice, really helps me sustain this exploration into the nature of things. This very deep and profound exploration that sometimes flows quite beautifully and quite easily and sometimes can be very difficult and quite challenging. So this support of taking refuge, the words, taking refuge, what does it mean? Sometimes I experience it and think of it as a place of shelter, a place of protection, a place of safety, this place of refuge. A place inwardly and also maybe outwardly of strength, this strength itself being protection. Refuge can be a sanctuary, a sacred space, which we could say by its very sacredness secures a certain depth of safety and strength. Once I found a dictionary definition of refuge that I like a lot, it's a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather, which probably each of us can relate to at times in our practice. So taking refuge inwardly and outwardly, and maybe in moments, in the midst of our experience, there isn't any separation between the inner and the outer. Maybe, maybe in moments of our experience, there's no duality, we could say, in this process of listening and of taking refuge. So we take refuge in three, three, I don't want to call them things, but three jewels or three treasures, we could say. The first being the Buddha. And certainly for many of us, this means the historical Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Our Buddha, we could say. (laughs) And this can bring a, a great deal of inspiration. It can bring energy into our practice. 
in the taking of refuge in the Buddha, we might reflect on the purity of the Buddha's heart, the Buddha's mind. This heart and mind that's free from anguish, free from confusion, free from suffering. And this has the potential of being a great inspiration and a place of safety and a place of sacredness for us. We also might reflect on the amazing and great accomplishments of the Buddha, which again might inspire us towards a more sustained and a greater effort in our own practice. And lastly, and I think very important, very important aspect of taking refuge in the Buddha is that we're, in a sense, taking refuge in our own true nature, our Buddha nature. We're taking refuge in the truth of ourselves. We're taking refuge in our innate, awakened nature, what's sometimes called our original face. And that in the, the fact is that we're not separate from this. The truth is that we're not separate from it. This innate, awakened nature of ours is not somewhere else. It's not other than us. But it's right here, always. And it's to be known. So from this perspective, when we take refuge in the Buddha... It's really a symbol of a faith, we could say, faith in our deepest and most expansive potential. Faith in the possibility of really the full blossoming of this potential, this potential of wisdom and compassion within our own heart, within our own mind. So the first refuge, the Buddha. The second jewel or treasure that we take refuge in is the Dharma. And often this is, uh, the word Dharma is translated as the teachings of the Buddha. The Dharma, the teachings of the truth, the way of things, the universal laws. We could say when we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in what is really true, what is actually true moment to moment. We take refuge in how it is. Simple, really. Just how it is. And so what we're doing in this is actually beginning to align ourselves with what is. And align ourselves with the practice of awareness, of mindful awareness. Aligning ourselves with our vipassana practice, insight practice taking refuge in the practice that brings, brings us to look at how it is and to cultivate a very direct and powerful attention, mindful attention, in order to see how it is, in order to see the truth. And dropping our expectations, dropping our habitual patterns of seeing, and not even relying on others to tell us how it is, but really taking refuge in the Dharma for ourselves, taking refuges in the teachings and in the practices that the Buddha offered that really illuminate the truth for ourselves. So this is the second refuge, the Dharma. The third, the third jewel or the third treasure that we take refuge in is the Sangha. And traditionally the Sangha is spoken of as the community of monastics, the monastic community, the monastic Sangha, the monks and nuns, those who have deeply devoted their lives to the cultivation of wisdom and compassion since the time of the Buddha. And the truth is that if it wasn't for this monastic sangha over the centuries, that you and I wouldn't be sitting here this evening. That's really the community that has passed 
these teachings and practices along over the centuries and given us the gift of being able to sit and practice and share the Dharma here. In more recent times, the Sangha has, the meaning of Sangha has expanded. It's really come to mean not only the monastic Sangha, but also the Sangha, the community of lay teachers, and also the Sangha, the community of lay practitioners. So in taking refuge in the Sangha, both the lay and the monastic Sangha, we're taking refuge in our connection, we could say, to those who have sought the truth, who are seeking the truth, who are seeking the liberation of the heart, the liberation of the mind, over the centuries, past years, right now, and on into the future. There are moments when when I take refuge in the Sangha, when there's really this sense inside of the vast array of human beings in this world, past, present, and on into the future, that I'm connected with, that I'm connected with in this process of awakening. There's a sense of connection and unity that really brings me a lot of energy and a lot of inspiration and opens up my heart in, in the process of awakening. It's very helpful and very inspiring. And I think a very important aspect of taking refuge in Sangha is that we're actually taking refuge in each other. Right here, right now. Alone and yet together. Right here. The support, the encouragement, the inspiration that we receive from each other and that we give to each other. Very necessary in this journey. It's very important and powerful and sometimes very difficult journey that we've all engaged in. In our culture, in Western culture, we're really not offered uh, any support much at all uh, towards engaging in this journey. And it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to practice all by oneself in this world. We need Sangha. We need each other. We need the support. We need the inspiration. We need the strength of Sangha to continue on this journey of awakening. So the three refuges that we take, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And there's another body of support that's really one of the great pillars, we could say, of the Buddha's teaching, and which itself is a practice. This is sila, often translated out of the Pali as morality. And exploring that a little bit, it's really about living ethically, living in ethical relationship with all forms of life, including ourselves living with a very deep moral sensitivity towards and with all forms of life. The Buddha offered these teachings and these practices in the form of precepts or guidelines. Guidelines meaning that they're not really tight, rigid rules that are laid upon us from the outside. The ground, the basic underlying principle of these guidelines, of these precepts, is really the idea and the intention of non-harming. The idea and the intention to live in such a way as to connect to life with a very deep respect, with a caring, 
with an honoring of life in all of its forms, and then act from this place. The precepts are actually based in the practice of seeing and understanding what brings ease, what brings happiness, what brings contentment on its deepest level, what brings suffering, what brings confusion, what brings unease or dis-ease. Beginning to see that clearly. This is really the basis of the practice of the precepts, of the guidelines. One of the wonderful things for me when I first came to practice was the realization that the precepts are really points of practice. They're aspects of our exploration into the nature of things. And our relationship with any one of these guidelines may light up as a point of practice for us at any time along the way, bringing our attention right into the present moment's experience, bringing an opportunity for the clarity of mindfulness and insight to arise, bringing an opportunity for the clarity of really knowing the interconnectedness of beings, bringing an opportunity for our conditioned habitual patterns to be seen. And in this seeing, having the choice to not blindly act out of these conditioned habitual patterns. So these precepts, these guidelines, rather than being heavy-handed rules, heavy-handed constraints, are actually truly guidelines of connection, guidelines of empowerment, we could even say, having the capacity to bring a lightness, having the capacity to bring a joy and an ease into our life. I'd like to read a piece from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. Harmlessness, it's called. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. See yourself in others. Then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? He or she who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister or your brother is like you. Each wants to be happy. Never harm him or her. And when you leave this life, you too will find happiness. I'd like to just read the precepts to you or offer them to you in English briefly, and then we'll chant them together, the refuges and the precepts, and then we'll chant them together in Pali to kind of formally enter into retreat together, all of us, those who've been here and those who have just gotten here. And actually, I won't read the refuges in English because I've just talked about them. And the precepts I will. This evening we'll uh, chant together and take five, the first five precepts together. There are eight, and some of you, I think, from the first half of the retreat are, um, have taken the eight precepts. We won't be taking the second three or speaking about them much this evening. They will be um, 
gone into in more detail next week at some point. I'll just mention them briefly. So the first precept is I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. And I always like to say it on the other side, with the possibility of extending loving-kindness to others and to oneself. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which has not been given, with the possibility of moving towards giving freely, extending generosity to others and to oneself. The third, I undertake the precept to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual behavior. And in this case, refrain or be celibate through the retreat. The fourth, I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. In this case, we are engaging in noble silence, except when speaking is um, prescribed, we could say. And in those cases, using what's called right speech, truthful, kind, skillful, appropriate speech, not divisive, not harmful speech, and maintaining noble silence otherwise. And the fifth precept is I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating liquors and drugs that will lead to carelessness, that cloud the mind and lead to carelessness. The sixth precept is not taking solid food after the noon meal. And the seventh is not sleeping on any high and luxurious beds. You don't have much choice here with that. And the last one is uh, letting go of adornments and entertainments. And that doesn't mean stopping coming to Dharma talks in the evening. Dharma entertainments, okay. <laughs> so I'd like to um, chant the precepts with you in Pali. I did forget to bring them in. <laughs> Some of you have them, uh, the printed sheet, they were out in the front in the foyer. And probably many of you know them. So rather than me chanting and then you repeating after me, we'll do them together and just join in. There's a lot of repetition, so even if you're not very familiar with them, I think that you'll, you'll uh, catch on. So we'll begin, actually, with the refuges. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gachami, Dhammam saranam gachami, Sangam saranam gachami, Dutiyampi buddham saranam gachami, Dutiyampi dhammam saranam gachami, Dutiyampi sangam sarnam gachami, Tatiyampi buddham sarnam gachami, Tatiyampi dhammam sarnam gachami, Tatiyampi sangam sarnam gachami. And now the precept. Panatipata vermani sikapadam samadhyami Adinadana vermani sikapadam samadhyami 
Abrahmacharya Vermanisika Padam Samadhyami Musavada Vermanisika Padam Samadhyami Suramereya Majapamadatana Vermanisika Padam Samadhyami Idam me silam magapalanyanasa pachayo otu. Oh, now I'd like to turn the microphone back to Joseph. Will offer us some instructions this evening to close our time together. Starting tonight and then for the next week, we'll be reviewing the instructions. That we gave at the very beginning of the retreat. Those of you who have been here can either review along with us or just continue your practice as it's been going. So sit comfortably. This will be just a short sitting. Settling into the awareness of your body, your body posture. Feeling yourself sitting. Make a soft mental note of sitting. Relaxing the eyes, the jaw, the shoulders. Relaxing the heart. Connect with the feeling of each breath. Being aware of the sensations of the breathing as they come in, as they go out. Might be the sensations of the air at the nostrils. Maybe the sensations of movement in the chest or abdomen. Your attention focus on that part of the breath where it's most distinct, most clear. Let each breath come in its own time Simply be with each breath as it presents itself. No need to make it any special way.
Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. It's that simple. Notice when the mind wanders, simply reconnect with the feeling of the breath. Every morning at the 8.15 sitting, for this next week there'll be some instructions given and then a brief question period at the end of that sitting about your practice. There is a chanting of metta chanting every evening at the 9.15 sitting, that is the next sitting 
that's coming up after the walking. So if you don't have a chanting sheet, uh, there are some outside under the bulletin board. And every Wednesday and Saturday at the early morning sitting before breakfast, there is a chanting again of the refuges and precepts together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.